every podcast. This is called. This is way before your time, Matt. What do we got? This is called Tell Me Something Good. You're going to want to get right up on that mic. All right. So however you want to position it, that's why yep. we were looking at each other. <laughs> it's just like old-timey feel-good music. Mm-hmm. Yep. I was raised on the Beach Boys, so... You were? I was, yeah. I've actually seen the Beach Boys probably five or six times. Well, here's the deal, man. And, and I'm talking to Matt Tift, and he's NASCAR driver, and, and um, you're an old soul for a 21-year-old. Yeah. Have people told you that before? I, yeah, I, I was always told that when I was eight that I was born 30, so I guess that puts me at um, 51, so that's like 350-something in dog years. So, Congratulations. Yeah, yeah, thank you. <laughs> You're 21. I, guys, I if you don't know who Matt is, this is going to be great. I have so many questions. We have questions from you all. We have questions that I've always wanted to ask NASCAR drivers, questions for you specifically. Mm-hmm. But you know that line always makes me feel good, everybody. Um, welcome, man. Welcome, welcome. Now tell everybody why you're in LA, why you're here this weekend. What what we're trying to do, what you're trying to provide for me, an opportunity. My son can't make it Sunday. He can, I mean Saturday. He can only make it Sunday. All good. Yeah. Yeah. So um, yeah. So we've been on a three week West Coast swing. So. All of our shops and everything are out of Charlotte, North yep. Carolina. Yep. So, um, is that where you're from? I am from Cleveland, Ohio. Yes. So, Charlotte is the epicenter of racing. You move to New York to be an artist or mm-hmm. an actor or whatever. Oh, well, I guess that's out here for an actor. But anyways, um, you move to Charlotte to be a race car driver or to work in the NASCAR or any racing industry. So there's over 500 uh, teams in a 50 mile radius of Charlotte. So it's so amazing. It's that is probably the number two industry outside of banking in the Charlotte area. It's incredible. Okay. So, and by the way, you get a water right there if you want. It. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, thank uh, you. Okay. Um, so Cleveland, Ohio mm-hmm. is not exactly a hotbed for potential NASCAR drivers is growing up. Is it? No, not really. And, uh, and what do your parents do? So, um, and I guess before I forget to mention it, because I'm sure I will. So we're actually here this weekend. We're racing out in Fontana. Yeah. Um, so uh, NASCAR goes here once a year. We only, And then the Cup Series goes to Sonoma. So I love going to wine country, but like our division doesn't go up there. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so I was born, well, no, I was born in Fairfax, Virginia, but I moved two months later. So I don't really remember Virginia or DC or anything. Right. So, so I well, consider we'll that, I was, that. Yeah. So I consider I was born and raised in Cleveland, Ohio. Yep. So, um, raised a miserable sports fan and a diehard at that up there. Are you still Cleveland sports? Oh yeah, absolutely. Okay. Through yep. and through. So, you know, we met at the David Ortiz thing, but yep. I, as you know, I had a huge respect for him, but I was always a tribe fan and, and I was standing next to, uh, um, Araldus Chapman, and that was the year that they just beat the Indians yeah. in the World Series two, a few weeks before. But anyways, um, so yeah, I uh, I was raised about 20 miles south of there, and my dad, he was from Chicago, and then he grew up like his teenage years in Mount Pleasant, Michigan, like smack dab in the middle of Michigan. And he and his buddies, um, they used to drive at like the local short track on Friday nights. They just bought like an 85 Monte Carlo when they're in high school for like a couple hundred bucks. And we'd will go- you explain to everybody what that means? The local short track? Because yeah. I don't know what that means. Sure. And does that mean anybody with a car can just go race? Absolutely. Yeah. So there's, um, you know, you got your, your sports of all kinds of different divisions and things or whatever and you talk about grassroots of any of those uh sports well 
NASCAR is the pinnacle of stock car racing. So uh, short tracks and the grassroots things I'm talking about, I mean, you can go by, and they, the cars have not changed. They're a 1985 Monte Carlo or like a Buick Grand National. Right. And you can go to a, a dirt track or an asphalt track, and uh, there's usually hundreds of them in every single state. And every Friday or Saturday night, they're racing them for a couple hundred bucks, and it's a good time to go hang out with your buddies and, I am and just go build a race car. stunned, dude. I'm stunned. That, I mean, you and Jake could do, do this. I, but <laughs> this is going to, I, I, I'm, I can't believe that this, this part might take up the entire hour. I'm stunned. Wait a second. So me, mm-hmm. zero driving experience. Yes. Could go buy a Monte Carlo, mm-hmm. put on a helmet, strap in my seatbelt and be mm-hmm. like, I'm just going to race some other dudes. As long as you get past the safety check at that level. Okay. So yes. safety check. So yeah. safety check me is a safety check on the car, car. or on you as a driver. Uh, not your mental health. Just your, just the car. That's why people love short track oh, wait. racing. Yeah. Wait, wait, you just <laughs> drove on the fucking freeway. You think yeah. those people should be able to racing? I mean, I don't think they should. But <laughs> <laughs> wait, so are there, are there, uh, 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 exponentially more crashes and fatalities on these tracks? At at one point, yes, there was. Um, everybody knows of the Dale Earnhardt death in NASCAR. Yes. Like that is that revolutionized all of racing forms because of a restraint system that now all tracks require you to wear. So it's a seven hundred piece of equipment, and honestly, that's probably one of your biggest expenses what to was, get into it. Tell everybody what that piece of equipment is and sure. what it does and and why it helps. So it's called a Hans device, which stands for head and neck uh, restraint system. It's not because of the bad guy in Die Hard, Hans no, Gruber? No, no, unfortunately not. Okay, yeah. That would be a cooler story. Yeah. Yeah. The Hans <laughs> device that keeps you from falling off the top of a building. I mean, maybe. Yeah. Maybe, who, could who be. Who knows, yeah. yeah. So it, it was actually introduced in the 90s um, because race cars were getting in crashes and it was killing a bunch of drivers and not a lot of people knew that it was around, but it became mandatory after Dale senior wrecked because when he wrecked, basically the belts kept him where he was at, but his brainstem went forward and it, it, it ended up killing him, right. uh, which is extremely tragic. But what it did is it revolutionized safety measures for all of racing. Um, so after that point, I mean, the rate of fatalities in driving exponentially went down because what it does is we have the most insane seatbelt systems we have two lap belts a crotch belt that meets it in the middle two shoulder belts the hans device and then two belts over that and then they uh, basically connect to two little um, anchors on your helmet so that way when you get in a crash your body uh, stays in the same spot but it keeps your head from moving so when you hit a wall i mean i've hit a wall at 140 miles an hour head on out and you do not move now, I will tell you, the insides of you absolutely go and smack back, but... Wait a second. Yeah. I hadn't thought of that. Your body doesn't move, but nothing is stopping your insides. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Your brain, too. Right. So right. we, we still Can't get, you get a concussion? Absolutely. Yeah. So Dale Earnhardt Jr., uh, one of the main reasons he retired is because of his history with concussions. Right. So, yeah, concussions are a big deal in NASCAR, too. Um, and, and it's so a, your it's, head doesn't actually have to ever hit anything to get a concussion in NASCAR because no. it's just your brain that's moving. I mean, just think about the force of a car moving a football field a second and coming to a dead stop in less than a tenth of a second. A football? Okay, so when you see me on Saturday, we will be moving at a football field per second. Okay, 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 okay. Okay, so when you're doing 140, mm-hmm. Man, I have so many questions. Let's start. Now, 140 is slow. That's like our minimum corner speed. We're usually 180 to 200 at the straightaways. 
And do some people hit a wall at 180 or 200? Oh yeah. It doesn't feel good. <laughs> okay. So, so I have so many questions. Okay. So when you get in a wreck mm-hmm. and you don't move, yep. but your insides move at 180 and stop, are, I know this is a stupid question, but are you sore if you don't? Oh my goodness. Like what causes that soreness? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. What, what is the, how do you, is it like a workout sore, like a muscle soreness or what is it like? Yeah. So a normal race, um, a normal NASCAR race for us, we are the, let me just give a little background for okay. our races. So our races are on Saturdays, the NASCAR Xfinity series. So we are the second tier series of NASCAR, basically the AAA college football, whatever you want to call it of NASCAR. But the cup guys still race in, uh, with us, but right. the cars almost go the same speed as the cup cars. So, um, and it's, and we race 33 weekends a year, but our cars still go up to 200 miles an hour. Um, I mean, we're only talking about a one second difference normally between us and a cup car. So even but in NASCAR, one second is oh, an eternity. Huge. Yeah. Right? And usually we're talking about a 10th of a second. That's how much we base things off of each other. And you can't even snap your fingers that fast. So no. you have 40 guys that are normally trapped within a blanket of about, you know, the top 20 is usually about three to four tenths off of each other. So making yourself different in that to be able to make the next jump is insane. So, um, you know, to get back to your question on that, like, um, you know, hitting walls and, and doing all that stuff and racing at those speeds, it turns into the most intense uh, job that you can possibly have because not only are you going that fast, but you have 39 other cars around you and there's air turbulence off the cars. Like when we move, we are changing the physics and the different downforce on the cars based on the air and slipstreams that are going on. I don't understand anything you just said to me. No. So basically we are, uh, part race car driver and part pilot in a way because we're controlling airflow it'd be like another airplane coming to an airplane and like trying to mess with it so that when you so when you're racing next to somebody on your own team Mm -hmm. you guys can manipulate the airflow together to help each other out sure yeah so there's tracks where we can draft together now there's only four or five out of the 33 events a year, then you can really do that. Um, Why? What's the difference? So we have, for those races, they put a restrictor plate. So it's basically taking our cars, which normally have about 700 uh, horsepower, and putting a plate on it that restricts airflow. And uh, all that means is that it reduces horsepower. So they're only making 350 to 400 horsepower. So it takes them a while to wind up. But the tracks that we race at when we do those races are mm-hmm. so big that you get packs of cars together. And the more cars you have lined up together, um, the less resistance you have on the cars. So the cars move faster through the air. But that's not every single weekend. Okay. I have two que- two questions. One, because I've driven in Boston mm-hmm. on the freeway yep. when everybody's doing 75, 80, mm-hmm. a foot away from each other. Sure. Now, I would not do that here. And this is, I'm not equating it at all, but I want to ask you this. I wouldn't do that here because people in California are bad drivers. Yep. And I don't trust them. Mm -hmm. On the East Coast, they're bad drivers, but there's a certain trust that we all have that we're not going to break check each other. This is just as fast as everybody goes. This is how close we drive together. And this is what we're going to do. Right? Do you? How much trust do you have to have in the other drivers around you to drive that close to each other at that speed? There's like a, nobody brake checks each other. There's like an unspoken rule for some things or are there not? There, because one brake check could cause 
an entire catastrophe. Yeah, yeah. So especially on those restrictor plate tracks, like we have 40 cars that run in one giant moving path. Yeah. Like it is it is less about skill at that point of like making your car fast, but more of knowing the energy of lines and stuff. And it's just all it, it all goes to physics at that point. And and it's just it's, sometimes it's just dumb luck. But for the You mean winning is dumb luck? In those races sometime because one guy, like what you're saying, one guy makes a little mistake. Like you could even have someone get close to your rear bumper and our spoilers on our car are only you know, maybe not even two inches uh, tall. So those speeds and that lack of a spoiler on the back of the car, like you think of a sports car uh-huh. and they are like fast and the furious. They got freaking four foot wings on the back of these things. We have a tiny, like just like a ruler size spoiler on the back of it to keep that thing planted. Oh, and by the way, our tires only last 40 minutes because of how fast they shred through. So you change them out. Have, yeah. Cause they don't have tread on them. So, uh, yeah. So there's a lot of trust, but I mean, mistakes happen because you're pushing, you're pushing a car at the absolute limit of what its potential is. So when you're driving at that level, um, the guys around you are very, very good. Um, but at the same time, we're human. Right. Okay. So then, you know, like in poker, mm-hmm. there are guys that I would tell you, oh, this dude plays like an asshole. Do you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. First hand out of the, he's all in. And everyone's like, well, I'm not fucking going. Take our ante. Do you know what I mean? Yep. And just a dude who goes all, same thing with race car drivers where you're like, where you're like, oh, this dude races like an asshole. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You know, there there are drivers. Going into the weekend, there are guys you know, you're like, oh, I hope I don't end up. Everybody has their tendencies. I mean, it's like a scouting report almost. Like, you know, you know, this guy's going to be a jackass or this guy's going to give you some leniency. Like, like what's a jackass move on the race car well, track? Okay. So, um, when you're passing somebody like moving away from restricted plate tracks to just normal tracks, yeah. you have a much larger speed difference. So your car could be a whole lot better than ne- the next guy's car that you're running down. Really? Yeah. Just Everybody <laughs> doesn't have the same equipment. I mean, they do, but is that a stupid question? No, no. So like they're very, very close, like tech inspection, everything. They have to be within a few thousands of an inch. Mm-hmm. Like that's how close they are. But at the same time, uh, drivers are different and then your setups are different. So how you, um, set up your car, you can make it go faster for like, try to get it to go faster for the, a short run or a long run, like depending on the laps and everything. Um, but every single track we go to has a different surface too. So yeah. your tires will wear out faster. Yeah, so but doesn't everybody. So when we you get to the garage at Fontana, mm-hmm. all the teams, excuse me, all the teams have access to the same equipment, right? Nobody's nobody. Are there teams that have access to better equipment? Yeah. Yeah. How is that? How is that possible? It just depends on the resources that their either manufacturer or team puts behind uh, them. Talking about money. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. But money goes into technology. And so, um, where NASCAR has gotten different over the last 10 or 15 years is the engineering behind them has gone absolutely insane. Now it's still regulated, but, uh, every single thing on those cars can show up on a computer graph. And so every little change they make should correlate to the track. Now, does it actually, you know, I'd say it's 90% of the time it does, but where things get different is a track like Fontana, there's seven different lanes. And so you have seven different lanes. That's seven different levels of banking, uh, from the bottom to the top. And you think, well, the bottom's the shortest way around, but you can keep your momentum and miles an hour up a whole lot more on the top side. So 
there's big differences. And so going back to like catching somebody, uh, some guys you'll be much, much faster than them and they'll just block the, you know, they'll just block you all day long. And then you'll have to, where I was talking about manipulating air, you can go behind them into a corner and overdrive, like go past the point where you're supposed to let off and get on the brakes and everything. Mm-hmm. And you can, what we call pack air. So you never hit them, but you can actually almost spin their car just by getting close to their car and they'll wiggle and then you can carry more momentum and pass them. So it's all air games. Okay. And so, uh, we, you still haven't even told me how how you explain <laughs> that feeling when you hit a wall. Yeah. Is there a moment where you're like, I'm alive? Cool. Yeah. There's a, I mean, my worst hit I've ever had was at Bristol Motor Speedway. And this was about five years ago. Very fit. When you're 16, bro? I'm 16. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So I blew a right front tire. And Are you is, the youngest guy in your circuit? I'm not. No. So there's, uh, there's a group I'd say between 19 and 25. That's basically the next generation of NASCAR drivers. Mm-hmm. So the cup series is kind of like baseball in a way, uh, where it's like a lot of 24 to 26 year olds that kind of go into the major leagues. Yeah. Uh, so there's a lot of similarities of how you get ready and they kind of scout you and get ready to go into that league. So, um, but our series is split up of a lot of young guys, but then also a lot of veterans who were maybe at the cup level, but now race on the Xfinity level because either family or sponsorship or right. whatever. Um, All right, go back to the hitting the wall. Yeah. So I blew a right front tire and at Bristol, it's a half a mile track. And if, for those of you who don't know what the heck I'm talking about with Bristol, look it up. It is uh, basically the size of just a little bit larger than a high school track, like mm-hmm. a running track banked at over three stories tall in the corners. So the corners are almost 45 degrees tall. It's maybe it's a, it's not even a quarter the size of what Fontana is. That is frightening to be on that wall like that. Frightening to a normal person, but not a race car driver. <laughs> is it exciting? Oh, it's absolutely exciting. Do you love that track because of that? It's very cool because not only do you have that, but there's 150,000 seats at that place and they stack it up and it looks like the Roman Coliseum. It is the most. Does it fill it up? It does. Yeah. It's pretty amazing, right? It is pretty amazing. Yeah. So it's, it's insane a place like that. But so anyways, going back to when I hit, so I blew a right front tire and we have tire failures or parts failures and those things uh, can kind of end your day. So basically something rubbed against my tire and I blew it in the middle of the corner. And it was at the point of where I got back to full throttle. So you're at the highest amount of G forces, by the way, the G forces we pull are similar to a space shuttle taking off. Um, so you can feel that in your stomach and your, Oh yeah. Yeah. So you go from already being at three to four G's in the center of a corner at 140 miles an hour hitting the gas. And then you blow a right front tire and all of a sudden you go straight head on into a wall. Um, you have about a half a second to get your hands off the wheel. Why? I, I do that because my fear is if I hit, it'll catch my wrist and either break my rump, my thumb or wrist. But how important is the wrist and thumb? Obviously when you drive very important. Um, I mean, just, I mean, you could drive without it, but you know, like the spokes on a wheel, we always keep our thumbs above it. And Uh that's something you're taught when you're young. Cause if you put them under and you get into a crash, or even if you have to save it, it can hit it and it'll just snap your thumb. Got it. Got it. Got it. Okay. So it's just a precaution. You're not saving the car at that point. You're just going to hit. So you have about a half a second and my, uh, my reaction is normally close my eyes and hang on cause it's about to hurt. And hurt again, because this is what gre- what gets me, because I've never had it. This is the, the impact is mm-hmm. so catastrophic at yeah. that speed. What is it? 
can you feel your insides hit your like the uh-huh. fr- like can you feel your heart hit your skin like your liver everything moves forward that was the worst one i've ever had because i felt when i hit the wall it felt like slow motion for a second because when i hit the wall not only did the force of the car go in and squish, but I felt my body stay in the same place. And of course it goes to the extent of where the belts will let me go. Yeah. But then, so that stopped, but then I felt all of my insides go up and then there's a moment where they snap back. Oh yeah. shit. Yeah. Oh my God. Now that's the fun part. Not really. No, it really, it really freaking hurts. <laughs> And, and that's not an everyday hit. Like those, there's a, a few times in your career where you'll have those big hits. It's not, it's not an everyday occurrence or an every week occurrence. You, normally when we wreck, there's enough uh, cushion that they build into the cars where you're going to walk away with bruises or maybe like um, screwed up stuff. I've had bulging discs, you know, How long like are you that. sore after that crash? That one was a little while. I, I think I, um, it, it was probably a few weeks that I felt that one. And just your entire body? Yeah, but but here's the crazy thing about it. 30 minutes later, we rolled out the backup car, and I went out to qualify with a different car. What? Yep. So we carry two cars with us. What does that weekend. mean? What do you mean qualify? That was this was a qualifying. Okay, so that was practice. So that was practice. So we're not allowed to practice during the week. Um, it's outlawed because mm-hmm. of the cost of going to bring a race car and a whole team to go test. So uh, test means practice in our world. So we get basically two one-hour sessions to practice our car on Fridays, and then we qualify for two laps. And what that does is the guy who runs the fastest lap time starts first. The guy who runs the slowest last time uh, lap time uh, starts 40th for the starting lineup for the race. So when you come out on Saturday, you'll see qualifying, yeah. and then it starts the field from fastest to slowest, and then the race will start. Now, that's all, not always the marker of who has the best car, but it's who has the fastest car for a one-lap speed. You know what I find interesting, especially in the top circuit, and I'm assuming in the way it is in, in yours as well, there's got to be 25 cars that roll out every day knowing they have no shot. Is 25 the right number in a 40 car race? Uh, I wouldn't say. I would, in, the, in the top level. What, in, the, what, in the top level, I would say there are 23 cars that could go out and win on any given weekend. And there's 17 that are almost like a class B group. And that's just because of but, funding. And uh, so then why, why are they racing? They are racing because, um, I mean, the guys love it. They're still in the sport. They have... Uh, but why are people putting money into a car that has no chance? That's not, I understand why they're racing, Sure. but why am I investing? I'm assuming millions of dollars yeah. into something that has no chance to win. The cool thing about NASCAR is that you still have the chance as a sponsor to get social media content, marketing content, right. basically a marketing platform out of racing. We race in, like I said, 33 races for our series, but 38 for the cup series. Um, that's, you know, almost 28 different markets a year and not many sports do you get to, you know, partic- you can pick certain markets. So that's how a sponsorship has changed in mm-hmm. NASCAR to where you can say, all right, I want the big market. So I want LA, Chicago, New York, um, Orlando, and I don't know, Myrtle beach. And there's tracks within a range of those areas. So they'll pick those six races and they'll do, you know, events at their store, or if it's like, um, you know, like Caterpillar on mm-hmm. my team, Richard Childress racing at the cup series level, they use it because there's other fortune 500 and a lot of fortune 100 companies that are in the sport. So it's almost like a meeting space for them. Right. Okay. Now I told you this would go super fast. All right. So many more questions. 
Some, a couple personal ones for you. Um, and guys, we haven't even gotten into the fact that at 20, you were a brain cancer survivor. Mm -hmm. So we're going to save the last part of this for that. Yeah, we can do that. Because here you are. And then look, I met you two years ago. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's a pretty amazing because I would assume that the brain is in risk of getting hurt when you drive NASCAR. Sure. Okay, let's get into that in a second. Yeah. Two questions that you could probably answer at the same time. Who do you who would you like to emulate as a driver and who do you think you're closest to emulating as a driver? It may not be the same. Mm-hmm. I know who I would love to be as a comic, but yeah. I that's not who I sure am closest to. I would say growing up, my idol and the whole reason I wanted to become a race car driver uh, was Jeff Gordon because of his on-track success, but then he was also such a great guy. But the other thing he did was he brought NASCAR into a different light. He did Saturday Night Live. Mm-hmm. He did talk shows. He did everything. Why but, was he never as popular as Dale Jr.? Why, like, why did he... To me, he was such a great ambassador for the sport. Mm-hmm. And it's almost like he hit a peak of popularity. Sure. But then it was like he almost dropped, and I could never understand why. I mean, I think it was probably because he hit the peak of his popularity because he was, quote-unquote, the bad guy. Uh, Was was, he? He was the good bad guy because he was, back in the day when he was dominant in the late 90s and early 2000s, he was beating Dale Earnhardt Sr., and people didn't like that he was beating the Intimidator. So what happened was... So he wasn't an actual bad guy, but people... No, he was a good guy, but right. people saw him as the bad guy right. because they loved to hate him because, because he was so good. He was from California. This is a time in NASCAR where it's the good old boys still. Mm-hmm. It's the rednecks. It's the, you know, it is, you know, the guys who you would think would probably be working on their own race cars, building in these little, little shops. And this is a transition time to NASCAR where, you know, they become multi-million dollar uh, corporation with 600 employees and like they become these corporations. Well, if that people didn't understand that. So when Dale senior died, Dale jr. Became the rival to him, but uh, the, the popularity went to Dale jr. And those were his best years. And Jeff was really good. I'd say until about 2005. And then he, I know he had issues with like uh, personal life and those kind of things. So I think he dipped down a little bit and then kind of made a resurgence at the end of his career. Mm -hmm. And, and who would you say you are most like as a driver? I would say I've been told driving style as mm-hmm. uh, Mark Martin. And How come? Because he was very calculated. He was very strategic and he was very uh, clean. So he'd be aggressive when he needed to be. But he wasn't the guy um, who was going to go do stupid things on the track. But he could always outsmart somebody. So, and, and I feel like I've been able to use that to my advantage. When And you do, by the way, you've mentioned physics four times on this podcast. So I, and I'm not that good at physics. <laughs> I can tell you that. <laughs> but how much with... Nah, and, and, and I'm asking you questions because I don't know a lot about the sport, but I'm also assuming... And these may be dumb questions. No, it's dude. fine. How much can you plan? You're like, this is going to be... This is my... This is how I'm going to race this track. But then you get on the track with 39 other alpha males Mm -hmm. who are like, that's not how you're racing this. Like, how much can you stick to a plan when there's 39 other cars around you doing 180 miles an hour who have obviously different plans than you? Sure. 
I think it all comes down to experience level. It's something I struggled with that very question in my rookie year because you you come sticking to a plan. Yeah, because explain like what a plan would be and then how you would go about sticking to it. How about that? So like today, um, this morning, I received a race weekend plan for my crew chief. So the crew chief is essentially the coach, right? And he's ahead of all the the mechanics and everybody. Like we, it's not just an individual sport. We have about eight people on the team total that make this thing go. Uh, Not to mention the guys at the shop, but that's just the road crew. But what I think would happen to me is you have targets for what you want to do in practice, whether it's setup changes, like geometry changes in the car. Uh, there's different you know, number of laps you can run to see what your fall off on time and tires is going to be. Excuse me. You get around other cars, all that kind of stuff. So you know, I could stick to that. But the biggest thing being a rookie last year was I didn't know where, like you feel everything in your butt in the car. So every single thing that a car does, you feel the flexes, the bumps, the every single thing in your butt. So I just didn't know what that feel needed to be from final practice on Friday to go into the race into Saturday and be successful. So, but uh, give me an example, not this race because, but say your last race. What was your plan going in? Like, mm-hmm. give me an idea of what a plan would be. Sure. I want to ru- like whatever that would yeah. be. Yeah. So last week we were in Phoenix. Mm-hmm. So Phoenix is a one mile track. It's almost got five turns. It's kind of weird. Um, but our plan was to go out and we had a baseline set up and we had two trade-offs. So what we'll do for changes, like we'll go out the first time and go run six laps and just see how the car is come in. I'll give my feedback. And then we go try a change to where we're moving weight distribution and like, uh, just giant pieces of lead will move around in the car to see how it'll be different. They'll come in, uh, we'll do that for about five laps and then make a, sus- a suspension change, do it again. And then, uh, that'll be it. Cause you're about out of time between changes and running those laps mm-hmm. for a 55 minute practice. Well then we'll regroup and meet with our teammates, the other drivers, and then go out for second practice and see like who has the best setup out of that. And then we'll go apply their stuff. Um, so like last weekend we were pretty good. So the second practice, um, normally at our tracks, we're just in fourth gear and it mm-hmm. sticks in high gear all around, but Phoenix is one of the few tracks that we actually shift. So I was playing around with shifting, played around with doing longer runs to see where my car would start to struggle. Cause as tire wear falls, your grip goes away and you're, it's starting to become a handful. And again, these tires don't have tread. So you're on you know, almost 250 to 300 degree tires, uh, that are just baking. So, so you got to see where it migrates to. And so once you hit the track, you have a plan of action. Your coach has told you, this is how you're going to race. Mm-hmm. So in Phoenix, what was the plan? Well, I think the plan for there was like, once you get into the race, I think you have more goals than, it, than it, you have it, a plan. It. So you have a plan based on pit strategies. So like when we come down this weekend for tires, California is one of the most abrasive tracks. So it'll just shred through tires. So we'll be doing four tires all day long, but last week in Phoenix, it's a smoother surface. So you could do no tires. Like you just take fuel. You could take two tires or you could take four. Now keep in mind, we changed four tires and put in, you know, upwards of 20 gallons of fuel in about 14 seconds. Do you ever if do you ever look at who's racing with you and be like no we're not gonna be able to race that way today this dude isn't is that do do the people around you change the way you race absolutely yeah so everything is circumstantial so if we're having a great day and we're inside the top five the whole race long your car will actually handle better than if you're in 13th with a good car because the air gets dirty i know it sounds strange but that being around other cars and kind of a gaggle, it'll make it to where your car handles worse. So you have to change your plan to say, well, maybe we will take two tires to, you know, save a little bit of time down pit road to 
to leapfrog other people under a caution flag. And that way you get track position because you're getting back to cleaner air. So that could be just as effective of, of a change to get yourself back up there. Um, and then we have fuel mileage races too. Like people will run out of gas and you have to learn how to save fuel. And we don't have speedometers or a, uh, no speedometers, no speedometers. We don't actually have a fuel gauge in our car. So it's all a fuel pressure gauge. So you don't actually know how much fuel you really have left. You know, so I, I forgot, I skimmed past this thing where we were talking about aggressive or I don't want to say dirty drivers, but everybody, mm-hmm. you know, I'm sure people line. have reputations, right? Mm-hmm. What is an aggressive move? And do, I mean, I've seen, you know, was it Stewart? Uh, Tony Stewart. I've seen him take it into the, yeah. Does it ever carry into the locker room where you're like, hey, dude. Like we're doing 180, so I know we all want to win, but we'd also still want to stay alive. Like, oh, yeah. do those conversations happen? Yeah, I mean, I don't think without it's, mentioning names, obviously. Yeah, no, I, I don't think it's ever a. Um, I don't think it really comes to most of the time. Hey, we're trying to stay alive. It's, it's you know what I'm mean? not that. Yeah, but yeah, no, yeah. no, no, no. I just want to make sure I clear that. Yeah, up. yeah. But <laughs> I'm, I'm sure yeah. NASCAR fans will be like, oh yeah, 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 yeah. He's gonna kill him. No, no, it's not like that. These cars are actually pretty safe. They but are actually. Re- amazingly, safe. amazingly safe, man. Yeah. Because the, what you just explained to me, obviously your body's inside moving, but they have you so strapped in. Nothing yeah. is a hundred percent, but they're getting as close as Absolutely. they can for you. Yeah. Oh, yeah. for sure. No doubt. But, um, you know, I'm talking about these air games. So like a, a dirty move at California is going to be, somebody is on your outside. So the right side of the car, you know, we make left-hand turns most of the time. So they come to the door, the right side of their car, and they just plant their car right on top of you as the car on the bottom or the left side, you're defenseless because they're controlling your car. No, if they do that lap after lap after lap, you're going to get pissed off. And I was at that point a couple of weeks ago where, um, you know, you want to have a confrontation with that driver afterwards because there's like you're saying before, there's like a code basically. Yeah. There's a driver's code of what's acceptable and what's not. And there'll be sometimes like where somebody's just that much faster than you, you got to let them go. Um, and just give it up because as far as blocking cause you're hurt. Yeah. Cause you're hurting both of your guys at that point. And most of the time we'll get frustrated and just take them out. And it's just, when you say take them out, just like, it's like a little tap and he spins them and that's it. Yep. Just be done with it. Or if it's a short track though, like Phoenix, like people will absolutely pile drive them and shove them into a wall. And that tap and spin is except is not acceptable, but just like one of the, it's like fights in hockey where like, it's just part of the deal. It's part of it. It's, I'd say it's, self-cleaning most of the time right uh, because again our season is 33 races long that's february that's president's day to thanksgiving you got a long time to be around the same guys you're gonna be racing and how many people do your your profession how many people do your profession uh as far as what do you mean with that nascar how many people well uh as a drive as a driver there's uh in the xfinity series there's 40 isn't that crazy that 40 people in the world do your job yeah Kind of weird. And if you count the Cup Series and the Truck Series, there's about 112 total at the national level out of the entire United States. It's a fraternity. Like, you know everybody. For sure. So that's like when you're the dirty guy, everybody knows that, right? Yeah. Yeah. And and people will talk about, you know, this. uh, Like, we had some people last year, they're just so aggravating because every single week it was like they just were so bullheaded in the way they drove that you just always knew it was going to be a fight. So it's almost better to knock them out of the way and just be done with it sometimes. Like, not always wreck them, but just move them and be more aggressive than you need to. But then, you know, there's guys, um, like, what's interesting for us is we race with the Cup Series guys. So it's like playing college football against Ben Roethlisberger. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's kind of weird. But even those guys, like, they know enough of that code to where 
you know, if you're better than them, they're going to give you a little bit of leniency and, and let you go right. because they know either they can make their car better through the race or they're just not going to race you like an ass at that point. Um, but you know, some guys just don't know that until they get in it for a little while yeah. and they realize it, but trucks are way different than Xfinity series cars and Xfinity series cars are different than cup cars, even though they're all race cars, every one of them it has subtle differences. So when you change series, you got to kind of learn that and the people you're around change too. So that was hard for me last year, just getting used to everybody and learning those tendencies because once you learn them, you can use it to, to your advantage. I imagine. Too. Yeah. And, and I imagine that keeping your cool in the car is, is really important because yeah. road rage, like out on the four or five, you're probably not a good idea doing one eighty. No, it's, and it does happen. It for sure does happen. But I think like that's one of my strong suits. And I go back to trying to outsmart the next guy. If I know somebody's pissed off, I know they're going to go and blow a corner and then I can just go past them kind of easily. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, there's a, there's a time where you got to get up on the wheel and you know, you just can't take it. Like there's, you got to step up sometimes because you don't want to be known as a pushover either. Oh, and there's guys that, you know, are going to be pushovers. And I feel like I was a little bit too much of that last year. Right. And I've been working on changing that this year to where I've been much more aggressive. Um, so it's, you know, you can always control those factors, but you got to realize what people probably think of you too. Okay. So, you know, the biggest question, probably the question that I got on Twitter mm -hmm. that I'm sure you've gotten many times. I have a feeling I know which one it is. Are NASCAR drivers athletes? That's actually a different one than I thought it was going to be. But um, what do you think yours? What do you think? I thought you were going to ask what I'm going to have to do if I have to go to the bathroom. Uh, <laughs> you know what? I asked a woman who hiked up um, Mount Everest. Mm -hmm. I was like, I just got to know, like, you got that huge suit on. And she was like, there's just a flap when you hike up. <laughs> she said, you just take a shit on the mountain. And That's then you interesting. Just, and you just close the flap and you keep going. I wow. go, yeah, yeah. <laughs> just let it go. Yeah. She was like, you just shit on the mountain. I'm assuming it's all right. I'm assuming you sweat so much. You don't yeah. pee very much anyways, because yeah. you're just rehydrating. Cause how hot is it in the car? Yeah. So I guess this ties into your question of our drivers, athletes, NASCAR drivers have to endure a race car that is 150 degrees for upwards of three to four hours. Now that alone is not where the athletic component comes into it. Race cars where we get, where I get not aggravated, but just there's a misunderstanding because not everybody's driven a race car. Mm -hmm. It's not going hundred miles an hour down the streetway cruising with, you know, Nelly on the radio yeah. and AC <laughs> blasting and everything. It's, it's not that. No AC? Uh, so we, we do have in the suit AC. So we have a helmet blower hookup, so mm -hmm. it will cool it down about 20 degrees. You mean like one of those little propeller things that you used to put on your head? <laughs> not, not a, it's, it's a little bit better than that. A little bit better. Got than it. That. <laughs> like yeah. one of those little dunce hats where the, you just spin the propeller thing. I, maybe we can put you in the car. Yeah. <laughs> That'd be great. Yeah. No, but, um, so you have a little bit of a, a coolant system in there. Yeah, I, I, I screwed it all up. You're good. Drop down, you're good. So we have extreme heat, you know, affecting us. Yeah. At the same time, you have 39 other cars around you. So the focus you have to have in that car is if you mess up, one of my favorite quotes that was ever said is from Richard Petty. He said, in all other sports, you mess up. You know, you screw up, you piss somebody off, or you do something wrong, you go in the penalty box. Mm -hmm. In NASCAR, you miss something by six inches, they send an ambulance for you. So that's, that's the difference. Not only that, dude, in every walk of life, 
every walk of life. I don't care if I'm walking down the street, I'm driving down Ventura. I zone out for at least five seconds. Mm -hmm. You can't zone. There's no zone. There's no zoning out. Like Mm -hmm. there's no thing. We've all been driving and been like, oh, what the fuck? Where am I? Yeah. You can't for three hours. You can't zone out at all. No, you are absolutely locked in. But then the other thing too is a streetcar has very nice and comfortable pedals and nice and comfortable steering. When you are driving a race car, you are pushing that equipment to the highest level of its potential for speed. So the brake pressure you have to have, like most of the tracks we go to, it is absolutely all the leg strength that I have every single corner to slow down these cars. Really? Yeah, it is intense. And you do that lap after lap after lap. You actually have to have some decent, you know, leg and and calf strength. And then uh, the car itself, the power steering is not like a normal car. It our power steering feels like when a streetcar power steering goes out. That's hard to turn. It's very hard to turn. So you're doing that while being so precise and your back and shoulders and everything really get thrown through the ringer and your neck especially too with pulling all the G-forces. And we will lose on average between, for our races, which is about a 300-mile race, between five and seven pounds of sweat during a race. Now the cup guys, they're talking 10 to 12 pounds of sweat. And how exhausted are you after a race? I mean, that's the thing I've tried to work on the last six months is doing things to get better with that exhaustion. But if you're just an average person going in there, you're done. Like even your Sunday shot. What? So what do you do to train? Is it more like a, a, a cardiovascular stuff, things like that? It is. I mean, there's a mix of it. And where I feel like I've gotten a lot better with it now is um, the first step I took was switching to the ketogenic diet. Uh, cause I felt like I needed some more of a reserve system cause mm-hmm. I'd have crashes and stuff during mm-hmm. the race. And I was like, all right, well I want to switch to a fuel system that's going to keep me going for longer. So I think, I don't know if there's anybody else who does that. Uh, do but you eat it all in the car? I don't eat, but I do have, we do have like a, essentially either a camelback or a water bottle in there. That's got a straw that you can use. So yeah. I'll do things really high in potassium and electrolytes inside the car to keep mm-hmm. me going. But, um, you know, for, it's, um, I'm sorry. I completely blanked out the, oh, oh, training. the, the training. Yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. So, uh, now I'd say I train six, six days a week and then light recovery on Sunday. What so, kind of training? So I'll do Monday and Wednesday are typically ab leg and shoulder training. And then the other days will be heart rate training because one of the things is you're in the car for so long. It's so hot. It's so stressful. You're going to have heart rate peaks and, I did a heart rate monitor and then people have done heart rate monitor studies. Your average heart rate in a race car is between 140 and 160 for three hours. Come on. The only sports that relate to that are triathlons and marathon runners. Like that's, that's insane how much stress your heart is under and your whole cardiovascular system is under. So the more you can control that, you know, the more mentally sharp you're going to be. Yeah. Because once you're, it's not that you have to be ripped and be Terry Crews. You know, mm-hmm. you don't have to be that. But I thought you were going to say Josh Wolf, but go ahead. Yeah, or, or Josh Wolf. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're, you're maybe a step off of him. Yeah, maybe a step yeah. down from Terry Crews. Got well, it. No, I mean, you're close enough. <laughs> but when your physical ability slips and you think, oh, damn, my leg hurts. Yeah. Or, oh, I'm, I'm feeling a little weak, like I need a refresher or whatever. Well, the second you think about it, I was telling you earlier, we're going a football field every second. You just thought for three football fields, and where are you at now? So what do you do, and this might, again, sound like a dumb question, but 
what do you do to train yourself mentally for focus? Is Are there things you can do? Mm-hmm. Because I'm imagining the first time you get out there and race that three hours, you're like, oh, shit, yeah. that is a long The first time, time you do it, it is an eternity. It is absolutely an eternity. What I do now is I've started working with a sports psychiatrist last year uh, to get myself in the zone, and I never get out of the zone. What you're going to notice, too, on Saturday that's very different is baseball players, basketball players, they're locked in the locker room. They got headphones on. Yeah. You know, nobody talks to them. From the time we get there on Saturday, I'm meeting with sponsors, meeting with fans, doing interviews, TV uh, stuff. And then we'll go qualify, come out, do an interview, go to the driver's meeting, meet with more sponsors, take pictures with more people, get 20 minutes for my lunch, 10 minutes for my sports psychiatrist, and then go out to driver introductions, take more pictures with a car, shake hands with more people, do an interview again, and then go in a race car. So your brain is just going a million miles an hour, and there's no other sport where fans Literally two seconds before you strap in that car, will be like, hey, Matt, can I get an autograph? And you go, yeah, sure. Why not? Well, that's one thing about NASCAR that's different from sports too, other sports, too, is that I, I feel like, and I don't know if this is a push from NASCAR or just generally from the people who are there. They're very fan friendly. Absolutely. Is, yeah. that, a, is, that, a, is that a NASCAR it directive? Is. Yeah, I, and I think it was really, really good for a long time, and then it got kind of bad for a little while, and I think the resurgence is that my generation of drivers coming in, you know, the guys who are before me in the cup series that are now starting to retire, they were lucky in the way that they were able to ride this huge wave of popularity and this huge growth of NASCAR, the golden era of NASCAR. And it declined a little bit, right? It definitely declined. So our, the next generation of drivers like myself, I feel like my job, I would not have been in NASCAR if I was not a fan going to the races when I was a kid and meeting drivers and all that kind of stuff. So if I see a family or a fan that comes up, I want to give them the best experience possible because they didn't have to pay 200 bucks to come in the pits or get a ticket yeah. for the weekend. Like these things aren't cheap. Um, you know, I got to tell you, but I, I want to make a good experience. Yeah. For them. I think every time before I go on stage, every time, and I've been on stage thousands of times, every time before I go on stage, I I'm humbled by the fact that, that those people left their house to come see me and mm-hmm. spend money, their hard-earned money. I, even this past, and I get chills just thinking about it. This past weekend, I was in, uh, I don't remember. Does that ever happen to you? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I know it, where it I'm going, but together. I forget where yeah. I just was. We're, we're in the similar traveling yeah, industry. Yeah, maybe it was Baltimore. But I was thinking, I was looking out, and we looked at a sold-out show, and I was like, because I, I know what it takes for me to leave my house to spend money on somebody. Mm-hmm. Right. So I know what that person needs to, wh- what part of my life they need to hold where I'm like, Oh, I'm leaving my house to spend money on that person. Sure. And to be that person for some people is the most, it never ends how, how humbling it is to me that I'm like, wow. And that's why I'm with you no matter what, like even smaller crowds, I'm, I'm with you 110% because again, like you said, you didn't have to come out here. No, I know this isn't cheap. I I, I know this is probably what you guys fucking saved for. You saved money to see me. Well, then I better go a hundred percent. Yeah. And and I feel like the, the mentality that Richard Petty had Richard Petty, you know, he's been retired for getting close to 25, 30 years Mm -hmm. now. But he is still one of the most iconic American figures. Yes. And you know what Richard Petty does? In his career, and since then, he has not turned down one signature. 
You know who else does that? Who's that? Larry the Cable Guy. Really? And Dude. I've, and I've met him. If you, he's an awesome guy. I, used, I toured with him for years. And um, after the first show, I remember the first show I did with him, and he walks off stage, and he sees me. He goes, man, what are you doing here? I go, what do you mean? He goes, why are you backstage? I said, what are you talking about? He goes, get up there and shake every hand you can shake. What are you doing back here? You and I can talk later. He said, they're, they're not going to remember you. You, they, you open for me. But they're going to remember you if you stand up there and shake everybody's hand. Yep. And after, listen, he did huge shows. And I picked either the merch stand or one of the exits. And some people didn't even remember who the fuck I was. Yep. But I was like, hey, just thanks for coming. I was the opener. Thank you for coming. But I would. Yeah. You have to. Yeah. You have to, right? Well, and, and we were in Vegas two weeks ago, and there's a lady going down the elevator, and I was going to practice, and it wasn't really in the morning. I didn't have my coffee. I was exhausted. Yeah. But, you know, uh, she had a, she had a Kevin Harvick shirt on. Not my team, not, you know, not me. But yeah. I said, hey, you got, you going to the races today? And she's like, yeah, it's our 26th year of going. And it's like, oh, that's that's awesome. I was like, well, hey, I drive the two car in the Xfinity Series. She, she was like, I'm, I said, are you going out today? She was like, oh, my goodness. Yeah, we'll be out here. I was like, all right, well, uh, you know, really nice to meet you. And like, hope you have a great time this weekend. And I don't care if they're I don't care whose fan they are of a driver. But you know yeah. what? They are going to remember when they tell somebody about it. They're like, hey, I met Matt Tiff in the elevator. And my name is not synonymous with NASCAR yet because it's a developmental series and you're 21. Yeah, dude. I'm 21. And so, but I feel like if I can get that footprint of making every fan's experience special, when I get my break to be in the cup series, people will know who I am. A hundred percent. All I can tell you is you, especially in this business and we're both in entertainment. Yep. I would consider what you do entertainment. A hundred percent. Okay. Look, they have many choices. The, your talent better be so far, if you're an asshole, your talent better be so far beyond everybody else's where you're like, well, we got to fucking put up with the asshole. Yep. Man. But as soon as that talent dips a little bit, nobody's gonna have time for you. Right. And you want people to be like, man, I'm rooting for Matt. Yep. Now I got a couple questions that we haven't gotten to. Oh my God. I can't believe we're almost done here. This is the one, and then we're going to ask this question, and then we're going to get into your your fight and victory yeah. over brain cancer. All cars being equal, which they're not, which we went over a little bit, mm-hmm. which seems crazy to me because all the garages are kind of close to each other, and everybody has access. At a certain level, everybody has access to the at same. At a certain level, sure. Okay. Like the, the top 10 guys at the top mm-hmm. of NASCAR are their cars all pretty much the same? Because I hear sometimes go, we had a better car today. I'm like, how is that? Didn't you have the same car? You guys have the same shit. How do you have a better car? How is that possible? And so let's move past that because I don't think I'll ever understand that one. Yeah. What makes for, I know this sounds so dumb. What makes for, at the everybody's even a top 10, let's say that. What makes for a good driver? And do some people, where I hear some people go, oh, I'm better at that track. Is that because like the 45 degree angle, some people just drive that part better? Like mm-hmm. what makes for a great driver sure. that separates it? I think when you get into the top 10 drivers in any, uh, any certain weekend, especially on the cup series, but I'd say more of the top six or seven mm-hmm. on the Xfinity side, the thing that makes them great as a driver themselves. Get dark in here real quick. I know it did. <laughs> <laughs> It's getting real dark. The shade's kicking in. Yeah, the sun must have went gone behind the clouds. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> this, is, this is the intense part of the yeah. interview. 
We started talking about real shit, guys, and the sun went behind the clouds, and it got really yeah, dark in here. listening. I better be careful. <laughs> <laughs> no, but uh, I think what makes them different than the rest of the field, and it's something I put a huge emphasis on this year for myself, is the fundamentals. Are your restarts good? So the restarts are after like the beginning of the race, and when there's a caution period, everybody goes down at the same speed. You can't pass, but then you restart to green flag condition. So your restarts better be good because everybody's bunched up. So that's your biggest chance to go past somebody while you're coming up to speed. Your you have to be mistake free, or at least if you have a mistake, minimize the effect of it. Your pit stops have to be. Explain really what a minimal mistake would be, because most people think mistake means crash. Yeah. What other mistakes are made on a race? So. Track? When we're going around in a race, it's kind of like a track and field race where the leader may catch the tail end of a field and start lapping people, like yes. putting them one lap behind us. Well, those cars, the speed difference, even though they're still going, you know, 180 miles an hour, the speed dif- difference is still great. And they're, they are in- unpredictable at times where they're going to go on the racetrack. So you can lose a bunch of time because you think you- they're going to go low in a corner and so you go high, well, all of a sudden they chase up and they go in front of you because their cars aren't that good. So sometimes that'll mess you up. Um, other things too, if you try to pass somebody and like I was saying before, they mess with you and you end up wasting time. Well, you just lost, you know, you lost a second. Well, if you're a 10th of a second better than the next guy, that's awesome. But now that's going to take you 10 laps to catch them. And once you do catch them, there's a bubble there. That's 10 laps is one second. Yep. On average. Yeah. Cause a 10th of a second times 10, that's one second. But you, and you have to hit it every single time, and more than likely, they're going to have a lap where they're a little bit better than you. That is so it, it is so precise. Yeah. And your margin for error, when you're talking about a tenth of a second on a, on one lap, can be the difference in a race. Yep. The margin for error, when you say little mistakes, like you make three little mistakes in a race, you're like, yeah. oh, I'm f- I could be screwed. The here. race in Atlanta came down. The winner won it by less than one and a half inches over the other car. That's how close these things are. And so to get back to you know what makes a difference when you're that close and locked in, that's where the setup part comes into it. So where that happens is, yeah, sure, we have the same stuff. Essentially, it's like the you know it's like ninety nine percent the same, but. Your crew chief, the head of your team, he's the one making you know all the calls and all the shots for what is put together on that car between the mo- the motor suspension, um, all that kind of stuff, and the strategy of the race. That's where you're. How important is the crew chief to the victory in the in the? Huge, huge. You can have the absolute best call and if uh, car, and if he messes up a call, you're not going to win. He, d- during the race, even he's important. Yes, because he's the one that makes the calls of when to make those pit stops. Got it. What adjustments you make, but. My feedback has to be great. That's one of the other fundamentals. But then also he, um, the crew chief and myself and a spotter, we have a spotter that sits on top of the grandstand because we can't see out of anything except for the little tiny little left front portion of our windshield because we're so strapped in. The communication and chemistry has to be so good that you, you can't all, see all around you. Doing I can't what? really see to my right that much. The window nets to the left, so you can't see much there. You have a little quarter window and you have a rear mirror, but guess what? You have a spoiler in the back, so you can't see that much. So you go by the feel of the air and that spotter that's talking in your ear, telling you where cars are. The feel of the air you go by and the sound of their motor. Dude. Okay. This could be an eight-hour podcast. We have to get to your brain cancer survivor. At what age were you diagnosed? So uh, I do want to clarify that. So 
technically speaking, neurologists and neurosurgeons have said that any kind of a brain tumor is brain cancer. Now, right. luckily in the scope of things, mine was a grade two tumor, which was caught benign, but had cancerous markers. So right. at any given time, yes, it could have become brain cancer. But I just want to say that because I know there's a lot of people I deal with that uh, even my step grandma passed away from brain cancer. So I want to differentiate myself because I was lucky. Your in that. step grandma. Yeah. So not blood related, but that's very rare. I would think for that to happen within the same. I know. And even though we weren't blood related, it still happened. So I, unfortunately when I was little, I saw her deteriorate and and pass away from a great tumor, a, a brain tumor. How, How, how old were you when you got the tumor removed? So I was, it was 2016. So I was, I had just turned, uh, 19 years old. July 1st, 2016. Was that right? Had I just met you? No, I met you in December of 2016. So I was 20. I'm sorry. I was 20. Yeah. Yeah. So I was 20 when I got it out, but I was diagnosed in like April or May and that's when I was 19. And so, so had you felt Mm -hmm. like, how long had you felt something? What did you feel like? What? I felt like something changed in my junior year of high school. Uh, I started really, yeah, I started noticing a lot of headaches and like kind of weird sensitivities. But then as I moved down to uh, Charlotte to go to, to college there, I went to college while I was racing too, which was kind of crazy. That's amazing. Yeah. And, but during that time when I moved down there, I had a bloody nose almost 72 days in a row. And now I grew up with bloody noses all the time. What? But I had at least like a little bit of something. And I was like, all right, well, I don't know what this is. So I went to an ear, nose, and throat doctor. And they're saying, well, your veins are expanded and stuff. It's probably the pressure changes. And you know how like people move out to Arizona. Yeah, and it gets yeah, all yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was yeah, like, yeah. all right, it's a pressure change. Not 72 days in a row, bro. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I didn't put the puzzle together, but I was so used to it growing up from when I was about seven or eight on that it would happen so frequently, at least like two to three times a week that... I was, it was, you know, second nature to me. So I was like, all right, well, it's just happening more frequently. And it kind of dwindled. But then when I was in school, um, I would have this horrible, and I mean horrible, light sensitivity. So I would be at my girlfriend's apartment, and this was my freshman year of college. And um, so this By the was. Way, every girl wants to date the NASCAR driver in college. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> Funny story. We actually met on. We actually met on Tinder before she knew I was a NASCAR driver. Mm-hmm. So I, I'll give myself some brownie points in there. You didn't put NASCAR on your Tinder profile? Uh, I, had I mean, it for are, a you, little... are you a rookie? <laughs> what do you mean? You should have been I, I in your I car, bro. I might have had a picture. Yeah, too. you should have been in the car. Are you kidding? I know, I know. So, um, But I'd wake up and she'd turn the lights on. And I was like, oh my God, Like, turn the lights off. Just turn the lights off. And she's like, what's wrong? Just turn the lights off now. And I didn't have migraines or anything like as a history growing up. So, you know, she turned the lights off. I was like, all right, just try it again. Let me just see if it, you know, you, you don't know if it's like you're exhausted or hungover or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like you just, you don't know what it is. Well, but it kept on happening. As someone who's had head in, multiple head injuries, I've yeah. had nine concussions. I've oh, been geez. knocked out three times. That light sensitivity is no joke. No. People don't understand it's like somebody sticking a dagger in your head. Oh, it's the worst. Yeah. Yeah. So this kept on happening. And then I also started to notice I was getting increasingly more uh, anxious around situations. And I'm not a person who's typically anxious. No, you seem super chill, man. Yeah. And that's where things started to get weird. And so we went on vacation uh, to Cancun and we went to a senior frogs there and we were just enjoying it. Like, you know, getting a few drinks, hanging out, whatever. And it was like a live band on stage. And then like at 10 o'clock there, they changed it to where it's a little bit more of a club setting. And 
strobe lights started going off and everything. And all of a sudden I went into this full out panic attack. And I was like, Jordan, we got to get out of here now. Had you ever had a panic attack before? No. Was your heart thumping? Yeah. My heart was thumping. It felt like the walls were closing in. Mm -hmm. It was, I felt like the place was going to catch on fire. I felt like somebody, you know, was just, I don't know what was going to happen, but something bad was going to happen. Now, of course, nothing was actually going on except for the fact that something happened with those lights and everything to where my brain went into panic mode. And so I, we rode the shuttle back to the resort and I started just freaking out and we got back to the, the hotel room and I started crying and Jordan was like, I think you have a brain tumor. And she just said that out she loud. She just said that she was like, I don't know what it is, but I feel like you have a brain tumor and you need to get it checked out. So the nights that we were left on the vacation, you know, I had a great time and everything, but I started noticing like this weird female voice in my head within like a song at night when I was alone. And I started to feel like people were chasing me around like schizophrenia type of stuff. Ooh, explain the song. Like you could hear it. Yeah. Yeah. Like any female pop song, um, there's a certain pitch or tone yeah. or whatever. And it would just play again and again. It was like haunting, like absolutely terrifying. You were starting to freak the fuck out. Yeah. And it would happen almost every single night driving back home and everything. And I just sometimes have to pull over and stop and I'd be like, Oh my God, what is that? And it just felt like somebody was haunting me because your brain is so important for your job to be able to stay calm. Yeah. So right. uh, Yeah. And, and at the time, like it did not, this only happened away from the racetrack because once the adrenaline kicked in, I was locked in the zone. So that, you know, adrenaline masks a lot of things, max and masks pain. It masks emotions. It'll increase emotions, but it can cover up those things. So I got in a crash and I had a, uh, a bulging disc in my back after it. So I went in for an MRI scan at the NASCAR um, liaison's office there. And I met with a guy named Dr. Petty. I said, Hey, Dr. Petty, I have, uh, you know, I've had these back pains and then um, he's like, anything else going on? So I started describing him the symptoms and I told you about that crash where I hit 140 into the wall mm-hmm. and I was like, you know what, maybe, uh, maybe I had a concussion. I didn't feel like it at the time, but I was 16 years old who, you know, how am I supposed to know if I have a concussion or not at that point? And so I said, can we just maybe check this out? Because something is not right here. So he's like, yeah, uh, I, I definitely think we need to see what it is. So they take the scan and in my right frontal lobe, which if you want to find it, it you take your ear, your right ear and then your eyeball and you do a cross section and that's about where it is. So it can control your, your motor skills, some of your thinking and like your tongue movement, all that stuff. There was about a um, half dollar size coin, big old gray spot in the middle of my scan. And at first they didn't know what it was. Um, they thought it could either be a brain tumor or something called cellular dysplasia, which is basically just like a birth defect, almost like a birthmark mm-hmm. in your brain. So they were, they kind of sent it to a review panel, but I was still racing. Like this all happened in late April, I think, um, or mid April. So I kept on racing and then they pulled me in, uh, at the end of May and they said, Hey, we need to do a biopsy on this because the brain tumor board thinks that this could be a brain tumor. And so I said, okay. Um, so I told the team and I was going to set out one race and I was only doing a part-time schedule. So like, this is my time to break into NASCAR and I'm having my best season ever. So this is like the worst timing. And so of course I'm like, all right, I'll sit this one out, but you think I'm going to go good to go for Daytona for July 4th week. And they're like, yeah, it should be fine. If, if the results are fine, I was like, okay, I'll suck it up and, and, and yeah. go. So I told them that was fully planning on racing Daytona. Well, three or four days later they go, 
yeah, the results are back in. This is a brain tumor. And so I'm sitting there in the room, and of course, I'm selfish at the time. How old? Uh, 19 turning 20. So I have my full career ahead of me, best season I've ever had, you know, huge organization I'm with, like just everything's going right. And then this hits me. And so I'm thinking, of course, selfishly as a 19 or 20 year old, well, you're only 21 right now. Yeah. So, (laughs) well, I guess I said, but I'm sure your life has changed. Well, I, I feel like I was a kid then compared to now because I've gone through so much in that time period. So I say only 19 or 20, even though I'm 21 now, because my life is so different than it was. You have a different perspective entirely. Absolutely. Okay. So, um, I was thinking, well, okay, this thing's a grade two. It's not cancerous yet like can't we just wait until the off season and just do it the day after homestead like homestead miami's the last race of the year because it's not like urgent i'm i'm, I'm thinking in my head right and uh like your sign says in the back of the room they say that's stupid <laughs> i have a big old stupid sign framed yeah beth made that for me because she knows that's, that's perfect that's for who you. i am yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i know you well enough yeah so far, yeah, yeah. Know. that's perfect perfect yeah so I, uh, and then as soon as I said that, those words came out of my mouth and I was like, all right, you idiot. Like, okay, let's be real here. There's something in your head. Are your parents involved in this? Have you told them? So again, I'm living in Charlotte. They're in uh, Cleveland and they're just thinking I'm going in for a brain scan just to see if there's something up. And then I get them on the horn on a conference call and they go, oh yeah, by the way, your son has a brain tumor. And of course, you know, we had been through it with my, uh, with my grandma yeah. with passing away and everything. So it's like worst case scenario you think of. So I was like, all right, well, I just got to go get it done. So that day I left, I went to the race shop. I pulled in my crew chief and the, um, the vice president of the team. And I said, Hey guys, I'm sorry. Here's pictures of my scans. Um, I need you to find me a fill-in driver cause I have to go have brain surgery. And that was the hardest conversation I've ever had to go tell somebody that I need to put my career on hold because I have something that could become cancerous, but I have, I have a brain tumor. Like that just doesn't resonate because I'm, you know, maybe it's in there for seven or eight years and I don't even know that it's ever been there. So it it just, I, is there any part of you by the way? Yeah. That, you know, there was a Jay Leno hated, hated having going on vacation and putting guest hosts because he was always scared that that guest host was someone was gonna like him a little more than you. Is there a part of you where you go guest driver, and then that guy wins three races, and you're like, son, does that enter a driver's mind at all? The first, when you're not the driver and somebody sits in for you, that first race that I had to sit out had my name on the car still because there wasn't enough time to change it yeah. out because it was already it was already on the way to the track. Like that was a that week thing, and I had to call up the driver and tell him what was going on. And he was taking over for me. He won the race. <laughs> and you're, are you like, well, son of a bitch. Yeah. And, and this is before I even knew it was a tumor. So I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, this is, I'm like, this is bullshit. Like what is going on? That's gotta be, because I know for me, that would be my first fear. Yeah. Like, yeah. wait, what if he's better than I am? Yeah. So, and, and luckily he was a veteran, so he had been yeah. around for a while. So it wasn't like there's a new guy going in, but Still, it sucks because you're thinking like that was I was running really, really well. Yeah. Like that was my chance to go and get a breakout win. But you get past it when you 
have this happen. How long is recovery for you? And, 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 and is there any precautions you need to take now? Did it change the yeah. way you race? Anything like that? So this all happened in the middle of June. My birthday was June 26th. I remember we got dinner and then I had to get prepped because June 27th, I made the call um, to schedule my surgery. And they're like, well, we could do it July 13th or 14th. And I was like, you better get me in here on Monday and get me my surgery because I'm getting back in that race car. And so they're like, all right, we'll see what we can do. And they called the next day on, uh, or no, two days later on June 29th. And I was fully planning on going to Daytona to do a press conference saying what was going on. And the next morning they say, all right, July 1st, you're in. And that was the day of the race down in Daytona. So then I had to tell the team, all right, I'm not going in for a press conference because I'm going in for brain surgery. And so July 1st, the, the morning came and we were, there's, there's funny pictures. You got to look it up sometime. Just search Matt's brain tumor. I did. And, um, for, you know, for anybody listening, I'm playing around with a vacuum hose of them, like sucking up, you know, my brain out yeah. of there. And dude, I, but, but, but I'm sorry. Yeah. Going into brain surgery. Mm-hmm. I mean, most of us haven't had brain surgery. I guess that's true. Are you flipping out, dude? I was, I was flipping out, but at the same time, I had this strange sense of calmness the night before and the morning of because I felt like this was a necessary step to get my life back, but then also the chance to get my career back. And at this, you know, I'd gone through this is unfair. Why me? All the you know crap you think through your head at this time. But then I was like, all right, you know what? I don't have a choice here. You know, I just got to do this. If I want to be a race car driver, if I want to have a full life without all these stupid things going on, I just got to go do it. And then I watched a YouTube video of, of a, of a craniotomy, the surgery. And that was the worst idea I ever did. Yeah, dude, not a yeah, good idea. No, especially brain surgery. It's like, if I'm going to have a baby, I'm going to watch a video of someone giving birth. Yeah. Like, no, no, I don't have a fucking stupid. baby. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Very stupid. Yeah. Especially when you, you know, drilling your head. So, uh, yeah, I had, um, went into the waiting room and, and they, the surgery before me took longer than expected. Mm. So I got there at like noon and we didn't go in until like three 30 and I remember they gave me the IV and everything and walked back and, or they rolled me back and they gave me the little cocktail and, uh, I fell asleep. And the next thing I remember it was, uh, I remember rolling in, into the ICU and the sign said seven thirty one Cause I remember those exact red numbers stuck in my head. Cause that's when I woke up. So weirdest thing you fall asleep before brain surgery and you wake up and there's a part of your brain missing. And the craziest thing that I did was the next morning um, I did an interview on Sirius XM the next day, the next day. Yeah. And the only reason I did it was because my mom said that when she, uh, she was, she's an entrepreneur and she had a medical company. And when she started it, uh, she gave birth to me. And then two hours later, she like, she had a proposal over the phone and she signed a deal on something. Well, she was basically saying, don't be a puss. Exactly. Do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So the next morning I did this full interview and I don't even remember it. So, um, but you know, long story short, it took me, uh, until from July till September, a really short turnaround. I got back in a race car. And so it took me, I'd say the first six months, uh, to feel back to 90%, which is what they say it's going to be. But then it took me from January of 2017 until July 1st of last year. And it was almost to the T July 1st to where all of a sudden, that last 10% came and no longer now do I have any schizophrenia or thoughts of like, Oh my goodness, is this hurting? Is that hurting? Yeah. And I'd have like going into a mall, like just daggering pains from all just like the sensory yeah. stuff. And like, I remember the wildest thing is I talked on my phone and I could feel like the feedback going from my bone to my brain tumor cavity, like the wave <sighs> going back and forth. So crazy stuff. 
Um, but, but now, you know, I'm on the other side of it. I don't have anything other than just checkups about every three or four months with an MRI scan just to see how I'm doing. All right. And you and I both are on a clock and I, I'm going to end on this question. Sure. And, and I could do another, I could do two more hours with you, dude. I have so many questions. I didn't even get to any of them. Um, how does an experience like that, especially as a young guy, how does that change your, who am I? How does that change who you are in the world? Mm -hmm. For me, I'll start with career wise. Career wise, I felt like I was a race car driver, but I didn't, um, I didn't get the most out of what I could be doing out of it. And I realized that how much I loved what I do and how passionate I was about what I was doing. Um, when I was taken out of that car, because it was my dream to be a race car driver, but you don't know how much you love it until it's taken away from you. So I, I talk about the fan experiences and everything. I feel like it's my duty to be the best race car driver I can be and the best person I can be because of that. But then I feel like I became this advocate of change and brain tumor awareness and research. And I've gone to Washington DC and lobbied congressmen about it. I'm going to do that in a few uh, months again here in May for brain tumor awareness month. Um, but I'm doing stuff that's so different than what other people do for my age group. And I feel like I grew up so fast in that year or two yeah. of recovery. And I just feel like it, it became, uh, a, a goal of mine to be as good as I could, uh, of a race car driver because I have fans every single weekend that come up and say, Hey, I know so-and-so who had a brain tumor or, uh, you know, I have a brain tumor. They'll come up to me and say that. So I feel like it's my duty to say, Hey, I came back into racing and you know, I didn't have to go through therapy, chemo or radiation or anything. Um, but I feel like the more I can succeed, it can kind of be a voice of hope for people that have to go through those kinds of things. And I have, I've had people, say that, you know, my son got through the next round of chemo because they saw you and your story and that pushed them through. Dude, that and, is, and that's, and that's amazing to me, even if it's just one person. It, 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 it's so touching when you hear that you have affected somebody's life for the better. It really is, you know, and I do dick jokes, dude, but I'll hear from people every now and then and be like, you know, your story about, you know, I don't know if you know, we have time to get it, but I was a single dad for a long time mm -hmm. and the, and uh, I'll hear people say, you know, you knowing that you fought through or the adversity that I went through yeah, and, and didn't give up my dream, but still took care of my kids. Right. And ended up marrying Beth and having a great life. But people are like, I know that there's hope. And the fact that somehow you can give other people hope is like a really powerful feeling. It's, right? sur it's surreal. Yeah. Because it's I totally know I'm different. just a dumbass. Yeah. Like, why are you getting hope from me? Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. No, and, and I have that reaction all the time. It's like, well, I'm just a normal guy. But then you remember, because being removed from it so far, I'm sure you're the same way. It's like, what are you talking about? But then at the same time, it's like, if you go back into that time and what you're thinking and you're so upset about what's going on or you're trying to get to that next stage of your life, you hit it and it, it's almost like time just clicks. Like yeah. it just, it's fast forwards all yeah. of a sudden. And it's almost like that didn't happen, but it so absolutely did happen because I'm so different because of it now. Dude, this was fascinating for me. We got to do it again. I would love to. This was absolutely fascinating for me because, you know, I don't know a whole lot about the sport, but because torn with Cable Guy and uh, I've been around it a bunch mm -hmm. and I always had so many questions, but I've never been like, I don't want to be that dude. Yeah, sure. But like, 
Uh, this has been fascinating. I can't wait to get in that pace car and throw up on Saturday. Yeah, it'll be awesome. And unfortunately, I won't be allowed to drive it, but you'll get to experience it. But then, yeah, feel free to ask any questions on Saturday because I'm sure it will be awesome. And I want to do a follow-up podcast because I want to see what you think and what you know what you kind of learn from it because it'll be a totally different world being on the I'll tell you what I learned for the sure. immersive side on that I'm a pussy. <laughs> All right, everybody. Fairly normal. <laughs>